0: Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I have so much information for you guys today. We are talking about religious trauma syndrome. And I think it goes without saying that this episode also has a trigger warning. Today, I chose this topic specifically because honestly, for the first two years of my religious transition, I didn't feel comfortable calling what I experienced trauma. In my head, what trauma is is, you know, sexual abuse, it's wartime trauma, it's experiencing a really impactful, you know, one time event, or it's gross neglect or abuse that children experience or that spouses experience. And I didn't feel like what I experienced was significant enough to call it trauma. However, over the past two years, I have learned so much more about complex PTSD. I've learned a lot about religious trauma syndrome, which is a term that was coined by Dr. Marlene Winnell back in 2011. And The more I learned about those two things, the more I realized, actually, my feelings are valid, the triggers I experience are valid, the deep grief that I had to go through in order to process everything that happened was valid, and it helped me find the help and support that I needed and to feel more comfortable with that and to feel more confident in... Where I'm at and where I'm going and what I'm experiencing. A lot of times, what happens is whenever we have this nebulous idea of what we're going through, or we're not clear about what we're going through, we can feel more isolated. We can feel a lot of shame about what we're experiencing because we might feel like we should be handling it differently. Or we may feel a lot of fear, worrying that maybe this is our new normal and that you know this is how life is going to be from now on and we may feel really confused whenever we act from our triggers you know last last week we talked about being triggered and having really sometimes spontaneous responses from that fight or flight place that can leave us feeling confused or ashamed or feeling guilty whenever our conscious brain comes back online. So understanding what's going on allows us to be aware and to be more curious and to give ourselves more empathy and compassion so that we can work through what is actually going on and look at it clearly so that we can find the solutions that work for us. I think most of us, too, have a latent belief that harm can't happen in religion Because religion does do some good. I think, I mean, here in my local town, we have a hospital that is religious. We have homeless shelters that are run by religions. We have after-school food programs and weekend food programs. There are ministries that help battered women. There are ministries that help abused individuals. There is so much good that can come from religion. Throughout history, religion has done a lot of good. And I think because many of us are raised with a very all-or-nothing thinking, we can believe that because something does good, that it can do no harm and it's just not true. The truth is, even though religion does a vast amount of good, there is also harm that can happen at the same time. And because we go in so open and trusting we open ourselves up sometimes to be spiritually and religiously abused and also sometimes physically or sexually abused as well. So whenever we're talking about religious harm, sometimes we can feel bad about that because we either feel like we did something wrong and that's the reason religion felt harmful for us is that we were the problem Or we may feel uncomfortable sharing that with others because others also have that all-or-nothing thinking. And when they hear us talk about religious harm, what they're hearing is that they're hearing us say religion is bad, and that's not what we're saying. We're saying that bad things can happen even in good places, and when we're not free to talk about it, when we are not free to be vocal in our congregations and in our communities, in our society, when we're not free to be vocal about what's going on, our experiences, how doctrine is affecting us, how certain leadership is affecting us, how certain interpretations of scripture are affecting us, when we can't talk about the exclusivity and feeling othered. And we can't talk about shame when all of those things are taboo. It multiplies the trauma and can leave us feeling even more lonely, even more ashamed, and sometimes even more angry, right? And confused. And so this episode is not to say that religion is bad. In fact, none of my work is to say that religion is bad. I think there is a place for religion. I see a lot of good in religion and I wholly support my clients who want to remain religious. What we are talking about though is the ability to choose healthy religion and to call out harmful practices to make religion a more healthy place or to empower you to leave unhealthy dynamics, whether they are religious or not. And to open up the discussion that there are some religious dynamics. In fact, I would say almost every religion has some dynamics that are unhealthy because we are humans gathering together with our own traumas, our own biases, our own false or toxic beliefs that we were taught in our childhood, and sometimes we propagate those things. Sometimes we pass them on to others in our communities And when we can remain open, when we can have conversations about these things, then we're able to address them. We cannot fix what we will not acknowledge. And so this episode is the beginning. It's just scratching the surface of beginning to acknowledge what can happen in religion to affirm your experience if this is something you've experienced. And if it's not something that you're aware of, if you're in a religious community, to maybe open you up, open your eyes to the idea that there could be harm happening in your religious community. And the more aware you are, the more able you'll be to help bring an end to some of these harmful practices and make sure that your congregation is a safe place. Now, even that beginning part may be bringing up defensiveness in you. If you feel yourself feeling on guard or defensive, particularly if you're in religion, right? You may be hearing a, not my church, that's not my experience. And I'd like you to consider that that is a trigger. It's a protective thing that we use in order to protect our wounds. And get curious with that. If you need to pause this at any time during any of my episodes, listen to your inner knowing pause when you need to, do self-care when you need to, listen to what your mind, body, and spirit need from you, and provide those things. This is a great place if you're feeling triggered already to just pause and allow yourself to get curious about that response. This is also great anytime you notice someone talking about harm and it triggers some sense of defensiveness in you whether it's in your personal relationships, whether it's in organizations that you're involved in, whether it's racial or gender related or sexuality related. Anytime you notice yourself getting defensive, get curious with that. As soon as you become aware of the fact that you're becoming defensive, notice that that's a protective mechanism and it's usually protecting a wound. And just get curious, what wound is it protecting? Often, it's protecting some sort of fear or some sort of shame message. And getting curious with it will bring it up to the surface and will allow you to acknowledge it and just take a really good look at it and decide if this is maybe a place you're ready to heal. Okay, so what is religious trauma syndrome? Religious trauma syndrome, or RTS, is a group of symptoms that arise in response to traumatic or stressful religious experiences, and it presents like CPTSD in many cases. Sometimes it's misdiagnosed as complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. Sometimes it is misdiagnosed as PTSD, PTSD often happens from a big one-time event. So if you experienced a one-time big spiritual abusive event, you may have more PTSD symptoms. CPTSD symptoms are similar to PTSD, but there are a few differences. Sometimes you may be diagnosed with depression or an anxiety disorder or some other kind of personality or mental health disorder it can get very, very conflated with other disorders. Right now, just like CPTSD, religious trauma syndrome is not currently listed in the DSM-5. And just so you know, the DSM-5 is the manual that mental health professionals use in order to diagnose people. These two are not currently listed in the most current version of the DSM. However, it's a common experience shared among many who've escaped cults, fundamentalist religious groups, abusive religious settings, or other painful experiences with religion. And I just want to say that today I am pulling from so many pioneers in this field. This field is brand new, you guys. It's part of the reason I got into coaching. This field is so brand new, and I appreciate all of these pioneers today. I'm going to be reading information that was gleaned from Dr. Marlene Winnell, as well as some information from Janet Heimlich, Harold Koenig, um, who else? Mackenzie Kingdon. There is so much to cover here. This is going to end up being like a beginner's guide to religious trauma syndrome. And I'm so excited you're here with me. And like, let's just dig in. So religious trauma shares a lot of symptoms with complex PTSD. And I want to talk about what these symptoms are just so you can kind of do some self-evaluation here. So some of the common symptoms might be confusing thoughts and reduced ability to think critically. So you might find that you think critically really well in certain areas of life, But there are other areas where you don't think critically. For me, I thought critically about everything outside of my religion. But when it came to my religion, I had a very trusting, childlike faith about what was being taught to me. I took in information and I didn't question it. And so if you find that you have a hard time thinking critically about many things, that can be common. Or if you find that you have a hard time thinking critically specifically about your religion, both of those can be symptoms. If you have negative beliefs about yourself, others, and the world, if the world feels like a really frightening, evil place, or if you worry about being able to trust yourself and your own judgment, or if you believe that others outside of your religion are out to get you, things like that. You may have trouble making decisions. If you've been in a high-demand religion where they gave you a roadmap of what to value, what decisions to make, who to marry, how to raise your kids, what jobs were acceptable, what your gender roles are, it can be difficult to make decisions without being told what to do. You may have feelings of anxiety, grief, anger, depression, or lethargy. So if you find yourself feeling a lot of fear or anxiety or having waves of grief, anger, mine, remember I told you guys I felt a lot of rage. Anger can be a part of grief, but it can also be separate from grief. I had a lot, a lot of anger to process through. Depression was something I went through as well. In fact, depression was probably my very first sign. In fact, my depression manifested first as anger and rage, and I went to an ecclesiastical leader to get that taken care of. And when they weren't able to give me something to deal with the anger other than read your scriptures, go to the temple, pray more, that rage turned into full-blown Lethargic depression. I don't know how else to put it. It became this like deep pit of hopeless sadness. And so my anger was actually my first signal that I was experiencing religious trauma, but I didn't realize it at the time. And my anger was about not feeling free to be myself, I wasn't able to express emotions. I had been stuffing them for so long and I just felt so much anger and anger is an alarm bell. You guys, when you're feeling anger, it's just letting you know that something's wrong. But when you feel anger and you feel like anger is from the devil or it's an evil thing to experience, you try shoving it down, you try thought stopping, you try emotion stopping and you try putting it in a little box and it just simmers and it comes out as rage. And so anger was my very first awareness that I was experiencing something not okay, but I didn't realize that at the time. Depression was my next clue that what I was experiencing was not okay. And again, I thought that something was just wrong with me. I thought that I had a chemical imbalance or something was just wrong inside of me. I took that on myself. And then from there, as I worked through depression, the anger dissipated, um, my feelings of self-worth increased, but then I became aware of the underlying anxiety and I started having panic attacks. So I had a couple of years where I was dealing with intense feelings of worry and fear and I had to, to work through that. So if you're feeling any of that, just know that you're not alone. Those are all common warning signs that you are experiencing emotional distress in some area of your life, and it could be in your religious experience. You might have a sense of feeling lost, directionless, and alone, particularly if you've transitioned out of religion. Having discarded the roadmap, you may be worried about, who am I? Where do I go? What do I value? What do I want? And you can feel so alone because Even if your community stands by you and says you're welcome here, it will feel like no one understands your experience and that you are going through it alone. Sometimes you may even go to mental health care professionals who will not understand what you're going through and you can feel very alone. Just know there is a growing number of resources, a growing number of therapists and mental health professionals that are taking on this topic and are educating themselves. Like I said, this has only been around for 10 years, this diagnosis of religious trauma syndrome. So mental health professionals are just now learning about it. I've been studying this for two years, you guys, and I'm still wrapping my head around what it means and how we treat this as well as how it manifests in myself and in my clients. And so we're just barely scratching the surface and there's going to be so much more information that comes to light over the next several years. So hang on to your seats. But for right now, you can feel alone sometimes if you're with a mental health professional and you feel alone, listen to your inner knowing and look for another one. Begin reaching out and problem solving. Everything is figure outable, including religious trauma. You may feel a loss of community. So, family, friends, romantic relationships may either completely shun you, or they may just not be able to relate to you, or there may be shaming or coping mechanisms that come into play in order to try to get you to where you were, and that can feel really ostracizing. You may have a lack of pleasure or interest in things you used to enjoy. For me, we talked about journaling last week. Journaling was something I did a lot. I love to write. Journaling was something I couldn't do anymore. Cooking was not something I could do anymore. Even singing, singing was something that brought up a lot of trauma for me for a couple of years after leaving the church. You may feel isolated or sense you don't belong. So even if you're not vocal about your um, descent, even if you're not vocal about your different beliefs, there may be this internal sense of I don't belong here and I am isolated and alone. You may feel behind the times with cultural happenings. So (laughs) whenever I left the LDS religion, I had never watched R rated movies since I was a child. So I had no frame of reference when I was talking to other adults. I had never watched things like the Friends television series. I had never watched The Office. I had never watched The Simpsons. I had never watched South Park. I had never watched any of these things that adults watch or would reference. Outlander. I still haven't watched that. I'm currently watching Game of Thrones. And I felt for a while like a 12-year-old stuck in a 37-year-old, 38-year-old, and then 39-year-old body. It's only really been in the last year that I feel like a fully grown adult living in my 41-year-old body. And it's because I had a lot to catch up on. Not because I needed pop culture in order to communicate with people, but I felt so sheltered and out of the loop. I remember the first time I went to Starbucks. I had no idea how to order a coffee or a tea. I did not understand the menu. I remember how embarrassing it was to ask the barista, how do I order coffee as a 37-year-old? I remember coming to her and saying, I've never had coffee before. What should I start with? And just the look of shock on her face. And I think that's really what it is. That feeling of behind the times isn't so much that you miss what you don't know. It's just that everyone else is like, wait, you've, you've never drunk coffee. The first time I ordered a drink with adult friends at a bar, I had no idea what to order. I felt silly. The first time I wore a strapless top, I had to call a friend and ask what kind of bra to wear because I had no frame of reference for anything that didn't completely cover my chest and part of my arms. I was so used to wearing LDS garments and so used to being completely covered, I did not know how to wear any sort of clothing that a regular bra wouldn't cover. And so there was this whole this whole world of learning that I had to catch up on in order to be a grown human woman outside of my high demand religion. And last one of the symptoms, you may experience many PTSD symptoms including nightmares, flashbacks, dissociation. Dissociation is where you blank out pieces of your experience. It's almost like you leave your body and you have no recollection of it. I have clients who have no memory of big pieces of their childhood or no memory of certain parts of their religious experience. So dissociation, it, it kind of feels like a blackout or it can feel like an out-of-body experience. I have a couple of clients that talk about dissociation as almost being out of their body and watching something happen to someone else. What memories they have feel like memories of someone else going through something. Emotional difficulty is another one. We talked about that just a little bit earlier, where when certain emotions are not okay to feel, you may have trouble feeling all emotions. You may feel numb or you may have trouble feeling, naming your emotions or expressing what you're feeling. I think I said this in one of the earlier episodes. In our marriage, the first couple of years when we would get into arguments or whenever I was crying or feeling distressed, Kevin would ask me, what are you feeling? And I could not name it. I could name when I was happy I could name when I was sad, and I could name when I was angry, but I couldn't tell you why, and I couldn't tell you any other nuanced emotions. Being able to name emotions, a wide array of emotions, and then to explore them and figure out why you're feeling that way, what thoughts are creating it, what experiences are creating those emotions, is something that emotionally healthy people can do. But sometimes religion can stifle that. So most experience these symptoms as a result of being in an authoritarian religion or a faith community. And individuals with religious trauma syndrome may be struggling with black and white thinking or polarized thinking or all or nothing thinking. There's a lot of different names for this, but it's basically where something is all good or all bad, all right or all wrong right? There is no nuance in the middle. There is no paradox, which is often what real life is like. Real life is never all evil or all good. It's all mixed up together. So being able to hold space for paradox is something that people with religious trauma syndrome may struggle with. You may have irrational beliefs. The idea that if you disagree If you have an opinion that's not popular, that God will strike you with a lightning bolt, for instance, this idea that if you aren't living exactly the way God wants you to, that he will kill your child or give you cancer or something in order to humble you. These are all irrational beliefs when you look at them with critical thinking difficulty trusting oneself, especially in high-demand religions. You're taught that if your inner knowing doesn't line up with the narrative that the whole community is going with or what the leader says, that you're in the wrong and you need to continue to pray and continue to ask for affirmation until your inner knowing lines up with the authorities approved teachings. And so we start to disconnect from our inner knowing because we feel like we can't trust it anyway because what comes from us might be carnal, evil, untrustworthy, and easily persuaded by Satan. And so we disconnect from that and we begin to rely on advice from people outside of us and we quit listening to the advice from inside of us. When we disconnect from ourselves in this way, it also leads to low self-esteem because not only are we looking for direction outside of us, but we're also looking for validation outside of us. And so when we disconnect from ourselves, we can't feed ourselves the self-worth messages that we need. We can't feed ourselves the love and nourishment emotionally that we need. And so we're left at the mercy of other people's thoughts and feelings about us. And often we feel like we have to hustle for those and we have to conform for those and it can leave us with a low sense of self-esteem. And we may feel indebted to a group of people. So people with religious trauma syndrome also may have skewed views of sex, discipline, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, anyone. Emotional regulation, we've already talked about that. Relationships where women must submit to men or you must always do what your parents say because that's what honoring father and mother is, things like that with relationships. And they may have skewed views of self-expression that you are supposed to lose yourself in order to find yourself in religion, which means you're not supposed to have a self apart from The group identity because of the toxic religious environment we spent so much time in, right? These were things we were taught even as little children, and we internalized them and we lived by them. And so those can be some of our struggles. If you find you may be struggling with religious trauma syndrome, like, first of all, you're not alone, okay? There are so many of us that are working through this. And more and more people, as we speak out about our experiences, more and more people are starting to recognize, oh, my gosh, me too. This is a big religious me too movement that is happening right now. And you may be one of those people listening to me talk about my experiences and waking up and realizing I have trauma that was religiously induced. And what happens is As we begin to speak our stories, and we'll be talking about that next week, I'm so excited. I have an interview with Tarina Maldonado, who's a public speaker about this, and we're going to talk about how sharing our stories makes it safer for other people to share their stories. And the more stories we share, the less shame we experience. And so I just want you to know that if you're listening to this and going, oh, my giddy aunt, I believe this is me. You're not alone. Okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Even if your whole faith community is telling you that you are wrong, that you're the only person having these issues, that you're the only magic unicorn that isn't getting happiness, joy, and fulfillment from your religious teachings, I'm here to tell you that that's incorrect. The Pew research that just came out is showing that more and more people are experiencing this, more and more people are finding that they can't deal with some of the harmful things happening in religious communities. And so some people have stopped going to church. Other people have changed churches and some have just left religion altogether. So you are not alone. There are many and more every year that are struggling with the same feelings and you can absolutely heal. All right. So there's a wealth of approaches out there to help heal religious trauma syndrome and complex PTSD symptoms. And these are just three of my favorites. You guys, there's a whole long list of strategies that mental health professionals are using to help people recover from trauma. But these are the three that were most effective with me. And in my coaching, I do utilize some of the principles from these. Remember, I am not a licensed mental health professional. My husband is, I am not. However, Because I live in a household with a person who utilizes a lot of these things, they are just naturally part of who I am. They're naturally part of how I deal with trauma. And so these strategies, these therapies are just part of my person and they do come out in my coaching. But I am not licensed in any of these, although I highly recommend them. Okay, so... And my favorite is to work side by side with a therapist. I love working with clients who are going to therapy and they're releasing trauma. And then I'm informing the religious piece because, again, a lot of mental health care professionals are not in the religious trauma sector. And so they might be trauma professionals. They might be people that can help you release trauma from your childhood or from sexual abuse or from, you know, other family dynamics. And then I can add on and inform the religious piece and help you release that at the same time. So I work really well with other mental health care professionals. As far as helping you, like helping inform your trauma recovery, and then from there, We work on building the life that you want after you've processed your trauma. That's really the piece I love working with is now that we understand what's going on and we've started to heal now, how do we take some of these principles from these strategies and how do we start building your future life in a way that you can feel confident about and excited about? Okay, so the three strategies I like the best are EMDR therapy, So it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy. And basically what EMDR is, is it's an interactive psychotherapy that helps you process psychological stress. So there's eye movement involved. Um, It's a really cool therapy, and it's highly, highly effective. Several of my husband's colleagues use it, and um, so effective for traumatic events in the past, CPTSD, all of that. Love it. The next one that I love is um, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what I started with whenever I went to my therapist uh, 11 years ago for clinical depression. He was certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, and so we started with my maladaptive thoughts, and we started catching them and replacing them with healthier thoughts. This is really helpful for people who have negative self-talk reels that are going on and on and on, or low self-worth, highly recommend this. Although I will tell you that CBT became much more useful for me alongside EFT, which is emotionally focused therapy. And really emotionally focused therapy utilizes your emotions. It's attachment-based and it utilizes your emotions and allows you to read that language in order to trace it to your thoughts. It was much easier for me to feel emotions in my body and then trace them to my thoughts. And then from there, use the CBT on my thoughts. than it was for me to start with the thoughts because the thoughts that were running my life, the thoughts that were wrecking my self-worth, my self-esteem, those thoughts were all subconscious and I was not very aware of them. And so It was much easier for me to feel the shame in my body. It was much easier for me to feel the anger in my body, the sadness in my body as an alarm bell that I was thinking something that I might want to take a look at. And so that is the method that I use with my coaching clients is we use a process that starts with our body and feeling and then helps us trace to thoughts. In fact, if you're looking for a therapist that does this, AEDP therapy or accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy does just this. So it's a mind-body therapy that's informed by attachment theory, emotion theory, and the neuroscience of change. And this therapy is brand new. It was not available when I started healing from clinical depression. It is like a decade old. Um, Hardly anyone was using it whenever I was diagnosed. And so I just happened to stumble upon my husband getting certified in EFT therapy alongside getting cognitive behavioral therapy from my therapist. And I put them together in a way that is very similar to AEDP. So if you're looking for therapy, I highly, highly recommend AEDP therapy. And if you can get AEDP therapy alongside EMDR therapy or back-to-back like consecutively, really highly effective for all kinds of childhood trauma um, and CPTSD as well as PTSD. All right, so what brings about religious trauma? This was probably the hardest piece for me is I was experiencing religious trauma, but I couldn't put into words like what is it? I think it's because we you know we're just now starting to talk about it. So let's kind of break this down just a little bit. Religious trauma can either be brought on by one big event that happens in a church or in a religious setting, or it can be lots of little ongoing traumas that build up over time. So it can either be a PTSD kind of experience where it's one big event, or it can be like a CPTSD experience, a complex PTSD experience where It's been something that you've been having to deal with and you've had to develop coping mechanisms with over time because it keeps happening over and over and over again. The trauma never really completely stops. You keep having to experience it. And so we're going to kind of break that apart. But I also want to talk about that sometimes you may not feel like you've experienced any trauma in the religion at all. But when you start becoming more self-aware, let's say you start having a greater understanding about your sexual or your gender or your racial identity, and all of those things, as we know, they interact with how we practice our faith. But let's say you start becoming more aware of that, and then that leads you to feel like it's hard to share the information about our identity with our religious communities, or our communities can reject us for having an identity that doesn't fit or let's say you start to have a better understanding and more empathy for people who are experiencing those different identities and you have greater empathy for how religion is impacting people who don't fit into the group and how certain teachings might be ostracizing people from that group which is what happened to my husband and when that happens and you can see that religious teachings are going against your values, it puts you in this position where you either have to start silencing your own inner voice, which does happen, and that can create religious trauma, or you may have to start sorting through your religious beliefs and keeping the ones that fit and tossing out the ones that don't, but that kind of makes you not fit in the community because you're not adhering to everything. So that can create religious trauma. Or you may decide you need to leave the religion altogether, which can be traumatic. Because when you leave the religion altogether, it shakes the foundation of who you've been. It ta- like it blasts open your identity and it makes who you believed you were supposed to be die away as well. And you're left in this kind of void, which is why the very first episode is all about recovering your identity. And I'm also creating an entire five-week program right now. I ran this program three times last year. So I ran group programs three times last year. Everyone in the program had some great success, some really great realizations about who they are, found their values again, started recreating beliefs for themselves, started creating a roadmap for themselves. It was such a beautiful experience. But I am automating this program and making it something that people can self-lead because I found that a lot of times when I was starting the programs, it wasn't a good fit for those who wanted to join. Either the day of the week that we were going to be doing our live calls was wrong or It was a busy season for them because of what their kids were doing or just whatever. So I've decided to create this program. It should be ready in the next couple of weeks. And I'm making it super affordable so that people can get the healing they need because this is such a huge piece. Being able to feel confident in who you are and who you're becoming is such a vital piece for self-trust and self-confidence and ultimately for self-worth. And so religious trauma can simply come from that piece alone, having to leave and being like, who am I now? What do I believe now? What do I value now? Where do I go from here? Religious trauma might not be some sustained traumatic thing that you were experiencing, and it may not even be one big traumatic event. Your trauma may come simply from beginning to believe differently and leaving the faith, or just simply becoming more nuanced and feeling like you don't belong. All right. Sometimes religious trauma, though, is brought on by spiritual abuse. And like I said, it can be one big abusive event. So I have clients who have left after a disciplinary council for something that they didn't feel like they should be disciplined for. Or after a really messy divorce from parents that they were promised would be married forever because they were sealed together in a temple ceremony in the LDS church. Or just one big event that just crushed everything and gave you this like one big traumatic response. And like I said, that can feel a little bit like PTSD. It's like this one event that just shakes your life and changes everything in a moment. It can be like that. But sometimes religious trauma is brought on, and I would say more often, it's brought on by long-term, sustained spiritual abuse. And so spiritual abuse can either happen in personal relationships or it can happen in organizations. And so we're going to kind of talk about both of those. You can tell, like I'm just going to ask a couple of questions and see if you can self-identify. In personal relationships, spiritual abuse can look like these things, but this is not an exhaustive list. So it can look like feeling silenced when you try to challenge or disagree about a religious idea. So if you have a relationship in which the other person tries to silence you or make you feel stupid or silly or wrong. Or foolish when you have a different idea about religion, that can be spiritual abuse, particularly if it's ongoing. If you feel shamed when you disagree about certain religious or spiritual ideas, ask yourself is it safe for you to challenge their ideas about religion? And I know for many of us that I'm talking with on Instagram and TikTok, it doesn't feel safe for us to bring up different spiritual ideas. With our family and friends on social media. It doesn't feel safe to talk about different spiritual ideas around the Thanksgiving table or even just at home or even in your own home when your family comes to visit. That is a huge question. Is it safe for you to challenge ideas about religion or is it not? Are you forced to attend religious gatherings against your will? Do you have a parent that forces you to go when you don't want to go or a spouse or a church leader that manipulates or coerces you or physically forces you to go to religious gatherings against your will? Do they shame or punish you for not obeying certain rules outlined by the religion? And when I say punishment, I'm talking not just physical punishment. It could be that but I find that more often than not, it's emotional punishment, like giving someone the silent treatment or the cold shoulder, or parents not allowing certain children in the home because they don't agree with the rules outlined by the religion. In fact, there's a, an LDS General Conference talk in which one of the LDS apostles specifically said, "If your child is living a gay lifestyle, if they have, if they're married to a gay partner." That you shouldn't go out to dinner with them. You shouldn't allow them in your home. You shouldn't go to their wedding. These are emotional punishments. And often I don't think parents mean to punish their children emotionally. They're just trying to obey what leaders say. But this is really emotionally abusive. It is spiritually abusive to our children, to our friends, to our family members. Whenever we cut them out or we give them the cold shoulder, the silent treatment, or we talk about them or whisper about them behind their backs, or we shame them publicly, these are, these are punishments that are supposed to make you repent and fall in line, but it's abuse. Does the person use scripture, religious texts, or certain beliefs or rules to justify their harmful or abusive behavior? And while I'm about to give an example from my LDS experience, this happens in many religions. If it is a high-demand religion, this can often happen where we use the Bible to justify treating certain people in ways that are dehumanizing or to shame certain people. So be aware of that. My example comes from LDS General Conference. There was an apostle that gave a talk about choosing to be offended. And that it's our fault if we get offended or if we're hurt by someone's language. And Kevin found people in his practice back when he was mostly meeting with Mormon couples where husbands or wives or parents were justifying harmful or abusive language and behavior when they would hurt their loved ones and their loved ones would say, hey, that hurts. They would say, oh, you're just choosing to be offended. And that's been a really harmful talk in the LDS community because it allows people who are using abusive language to shrug it off and just say, well, you're choosing to be offended, so it's your fault and I have no responsibility here. That's abuse. That is spiritual abuse. Does the person isolate you from others outside of your faith tradition against your will? And you guys, I want to point this out. Against your will is a big deal. Consent is a big deal always, and it plays a part in religious and spiritual abuse. So if you feel you have a completely free choice in how you worship and how you structure your relationships that are affected by religion, you're in a healthy place. Even if you're choosing fundamentalist values to live your life by, if you have full and complete ability to make the choice, that is healthy. But if you don't feel like you have a choice or if your choices are between doing it the church's way or punishment of any kind, whether that's a threat of hell, a threat of a disciplinary council, a threat of never being with your family in heaven, a threat of spiritual death of any kind, a threat of God being angry with you and not wanting to be in your presence, a threat of the withdrawal of the Holy Ghost. Whatever that threat is, if it's between doing it the church's way or experiencing a harsh punishment or a punishment of any kind, this is a form of manipulation or abuse. I want you to imagine, because I know so often people are like, no, you're free to choose. You're free to choose life or eternal death. You're, you're free to choose the right way or hell. I want you to just think of this in like earthly terms. Let's imagine you're in a dark alleyway and someone comes up to you and puts a gun to your head and says, you can either do this my way or I'm going to kill you. That is called making a decision under duress. And if we make an immoral decision under duress with someone having a gun to our head, did you know that the courts are actually really lenient with that decision because our life was being threatened? We made a decision to protect our life. And we will often go against our values if we feel like our life is threatened. Guess what? So often in toxic religious environments, people use the threat of eternal death to coerce and manipulate people to do things against their values. Because we don't really feel like we have a choice. It's either conform or burn in a fiery pit forever. That is religious abuse. Okay, so we've talked about in personal relationships. Let's talk about religious organizations. I'm gonna talk about more mainstream abuse that we see in more mainstream religions, but then I'm also gonna talk about highly authoritarian religions that many times get called cults, okay? And I'm gonna be really honest here, you guys. I don't make a distinction in my personal life. I think that there is a spectrum of unhealthy behavior. And I don't say these religions are okay because they're mainstream and these religions are not okay because they're cults. I think there can be cult behavior in mainstream religions. I think that there can be authoritarian or abusive tactics in mainstream religions. And I think it's just a spectrum from mildly disruptive and mildly traumatic all the way up to very, very traumatic. Our trauma response correlates with where our religion is on that spectrum, okay? So just because your religion might not be as abusive as that religion doesn't mean there's no abuse in your religion. I want us to open up our hearts, our minds, and our ability to empathize. By understanding that you can experience trauma even in the most accepting, loving, social justice activation kind of a church as you can in a cult equal to Scientology. Okay, so Scientology may be pretty far down on that spectrum, but there can be these authoritarian abusive tactics in any organization. I just happen to be talking about religion, but this can be in any organization. So let's talk about how this shows up. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. I am probably going to do a podcast on the bite model, which is information by Steve Hassan. He's done all this research on authoritarian religions, on cults, And I really want to talk about control tactics, like manipulation and mind control tactics. But I'm not ready for that yet. So this is going to be just kind of on the surface, again, a beginner's guide to religious trauma. So does the leader hold the authority to decide who can be kicked out of the organization or that God is angry with you or that you deserve hell? So if you're in a religious organization where one person can make the decision that you're not worthy or a small group of people can decide that you're not worthy or that god is angry with you or you need to do penance you're in a religious organization with an unhealthy power dynamic does your organization discourage free thinking critical thinking or opinions about their messages and i know some of you in these high demand religions are going to do what i did when i was an active member of the high demand religions be like you can you can think anything i want you to think of Is there any information you can digest that's dangerous? Is there any information you're not allowed to watch or consume or read? Is there any information or people that you're not allowed to be close to because their ideas are dangerous? If that is true, your organization discourages free thinking or critical thinking, okay? So I thought I was a critical thinker. I thought I was allowed to freely think about everything. But the moment I decided to read my church history, not what the church correlated, but to go back and actually read the church history from all points of view, I knew in my gut that I was doing something that could be dangerous to my faith. I knew it was something the church would discourage. I knew it was dangerous. And looking at both sides of an argument is critical thinking. Critical thinking was dangerous in my organization, at least from my experience. Does your community imply that people can be less valuable or worthy of love because of things they cannot change? And we're talking about things like your gender. Are you less worthy because you're a woman versus a man? Are you less worthy because you're transgender? Are you less worthy because you claim no gender? Are you less worthy because of your sexuality? Are gay people held in as high esteem as straight people? What about pansexual people? What about bisexual people? What about race? Are there certain races that are held up higher than other races? Do we tell falsehoods about certain races or ethnicities? Do we rewrite the histories of certain races or ethnicities? And is there a problem with age? Do we value certain ages over other ages? These are some things to look at when we're looking at spiritually toxic places. Does your organization put other religions and belief systems down in order to uphold their own? Do they claim that they're the only true place to get spiritual nourishment? And yes, I understand. They might be like, oh, there's some truth here and there's some truth there. But if they imply that they're the best and that they're the only complete system to get your spiritual needs met, you're likely looking at spiritual abuse and authoritarianism. Do you feel yourself feeling more guilt and shame instead of love and belonging? Or you guys, you might be doing what I did. I was like, I don't feel guilt and shame here, which I totally did. I didn't know that I was feeling guilt and shame because shame was so much the air I breathed that I couldn't recognize it any more than a fish can recognize the water around them, any more than we can recognize the air around us. It was simply my environment. So when I talk about shame, with people who are still in, they think I'm crazy. They're like, there's no shame here. But shame is the whole environment, at least for many people that attend high-demand religions. But maybe you are doing what I did, which is I found myself carefully obeying the rules to avoid feeling guilt and shame. So I wasn't feeling guilt and shame so much as I was avoiding feeling guilt and shame by carefully obeying the rules so that I could continue to feel belonging. I was fitting myself more and more and more inside the box so that no one could ridicule me. I couldn't be ostracized. I looked and acted as perfect as possible. Now, where the guilt and shame happened is when I was inevitably human, right? I would have a human moment, and I didn't fit the narrative, or I didn't obey the rules completely. I'd yell at my kids or we'd be late for church, or I'd miss a meeting, or I wouldn't do my best in one of my callings or assignments, and then I would feel the guilt or shame. But typically, on any given day, I didn't realize I was feeling guilt or shame because I was so carefully obeying the rules so that I wouldn't feel the shame. But I always knew if I broke those rules that there would be shame involved. Okay, so those are the mainstream ones. Let's move into cults and let's like wrap this up with this. You can know you're in a cult if you sense you're in danger if you go against the group. And I'm not just talking about physical danger. I'm talking about danger of slander and or destroyed reputation as well. So if you can't leave the group with your dignity intact, you, my friend, are in a cult, Okay, And it doesn't have to just be religious. Cults can be political, they can be personality cults, they can be relationships, like narcissistic relationships, they can be MLMs, they can be self-help groups, they can be educational groups. We're going to talk about all of that whenever I start talking about the bite model and mind control. But if you can't leave the group without danger to either your physical person or danger of having a destroyed reputation, then you're in a cult setting. Do you have to pay money, even if it's called a scriptural name like tithing, do you have to pay money to obtain spiritual development to either live your best life here on earth or obtain peace, rest, or glory in the next life? And you guys, this can be really tricky. They can be really crafty with this. So maybe, for instance, in the LDS church, in order to obtain the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, which is what everyone is, is aiming for in the LDS church, where you can be with your family forever, you can be in God's presence, you can have children. In order to do that, you have to go through the temple. In order to go through the temple, you have to pay 10% of your income to maintain a temple recommend. So it might not be quite like Scientology, where you're literally paying $30,000 for the next level of spiritual enlightenment. They're like, if you want to get to the next level, you pay $30,000. Oh, this next level is $100,000. Thank you, Leah Remini, for teaching us all about what goes on there. It might not be like that. It might be a little bit more covert, where you have to pay a certain amount in order to get into a place where you get more spiritual enlightenment. Enlightenment. So in the LDS church, you cannot get to the highest degree of heaven without temple ordinances. And you cannot get into the temple to get your temple ordinances without paying 10% of your income. And you have to have an interview with your bishop who goes over whether you've paid all of your tithing or not. And if you haven't, you have to catch up on your tithing. You have to back pay. Depending on the leadership, it's leadership roulette, but you have to back pay in order to get your temple recommend renewed. So that you can go back into the temple. That is cult behavior. Are you being shamed or punished for questioning beliefs or having different opinions? Are you permitted to think for yourself or contribute to ideas? Are there only a few individuals who have the ultimate say over what information you need to become enlightened? So if you're in a place where they're like, yeah, you can think freely, but when it comes down to it, This is what we believe, and you have to conform to these beliefs, at least outwardly, to be a part of the group. That's cult behavior. Are you being ranked? Are there some people who feel more valuable than others for various reasons around the belief system? Again, do men feel more valuable than women? Are there certain men that feel more valuable than other men? Are there actual ranks? Like in the LDS church, there are. There's a prophet at the very top, then there's apostles below that, then there's members of the quorum of the 70 below that, and then there's area authorities below that, and then there's stake presidents below that, and then bishops below that. And then way down the line, then we start getting local leadership like Relief Society presidents who are female or young women's presidents who are female or young men's presidents who are male or Sunday school presidents, there's a whole huge pyramid. It's a whole corporate ranking system where there are some individuals that are more important, that their opinion is more important than other people's opinions. Is diversity accepted? And I'm talking about diversity of identity, thought, or opinion. If you walk in, does everyone look homogenous? That was a huge, huge deal breaker for me. I remember I was in the the local Relief Society presidency, the local stake presidency. So I was in this group of women that was in charge of several different congregations of women here in the local area. So we had 14 different congregations we were in charge of. And we would go to their annual ward conference. And I remember sitting in another ward with the other ladies in this presidency. And one of them leaned over and she said, I just love being in other congregations because everyone looks the same as they do in my home congregation. And she said, look, that lady reminds me of sister so-and-so and and that man reminds me of brother so-and-so and and this lady reminds me of sister so-and-so. And it's like my eyes were opened for the first time. And I realized we were all wearing very similar clothes, very similar hairstyles, very similar makeup styles. We had, by and large, we were the same race, by and large, very similar socioeconomic statuses. By and large, we looked so much the same. I had a total Stepford Wives moment sitting in this pew. And I was not okay for the rest of that conference. I was sitting there and I was looking at my own attire and how I looked just like them. I had my LuLaRoe skirt on, my Downeast Basics t-shirt, and then I had a cardigan over that. My hair was combed very conservatively. My makeup was incredibly conservative. And I looked around and I thought to myself, there are no flamboyant people here. There's no one dressed over the top. There are no wild hair colors here. There's no one wearing anything risque. There are no tattoos here. There are no people of different skin colors here. There are no very poor people here. There's no homeless people here. And I suddenly instinctually started to realize that that was not okay when I started having different thoughts or opinions about that, when I started thinking deeply and critically about these things, and when I would voice them sometimes in meetings, I was told to be quiet. Or people just wouldn't say anything and like move on really quick. My comment was ignored. The bishop of my ward actually asked me, You know, he said it's okay for you to have different thoughts or opinions, just don't voice them in class. That is not diversity being accepted. So, if you answered yes to any of these questions, really consider talking to someone outside of the organization about your situation. Like I said, cults happen on a spectrum. There are some that are much easier to leave or question or become nuanced in, and there are others that it might not be safe to immediately leave. You might have to plan ahead and have a safety plan in place. Listen to your inner knowing. If it doesn't feel safe to leave, talk to someone outside the organization and have a plan. Oh, this is a lot, you guys. This is a lot. And there is so much more I could cover But before we end, I just want to talk about getting support. If you're experiencing religious trauma syndrome, if this felt familiar, if it was landing, if it was hitting home, it's so important to get support. And before we leave, I just want to give you some tips on finding the right support. So you are looking for someone that supports your own knowing, this is vital. Helping you find your own spiritual journey born from what resonates for you spiritually is what you're looking for. You're not looking for someone where the only valid answer is to stay in your religious organization. You're also not looking for someone where the only valid answer is to leave your religious organization. You're looking for someone who holds you in figuring out what you want and need in your life, and support you making decisions from your own inner knowing. You are looking for either a professional or a friend that tells you your authority is paramount in your life. You want someone who will affirm that you are the authority in your life. Second, it's okay to listen to your personal preferences. You may want a therapist or a coach who is familiar with your religious experience. So, you may want someone who either is or is ex whatever you were. If you're LDS and you're wanting to stay in the religion, you may want an LDS therapist. If that's what feels affirming, go with that. If you are wanting to leave, you may want an ex Mormon therapist or You may find that having someone who was involved in the religion at all may be really triggering for you, and you may prefer someone who is separate and unconnected to the religion. Honor your inner knowing and listen to your personal preferences. Your inner wisdom will guide you right every time. Even if it ends up not being as supportive as you would like when you're willing to listen to your inner wisdom it will help you course correct faster than listening to someone else listen to your inner knowing and last and this is so important look for someone who can understand and validate you one of the most important things is to have someone affirm that what you're experiencing is valid that your experience deserves empathy and compassion. And that they're there to listen to you. You need to feel safe with whoever you're working with. It is so important that you feel safe. Because if you feel safe, then you can show up and be vulnerable. When you're able to be vulnerable, you're able to be honest with yourself about what happened and what you're experiencing. And when you can be honest with yourself about what happened and what you're experiencing in a safe environment with someone who will hold you and accept you and value you regardless, then you can acknowledge what is going on inside of you. And when you can acknowledge that, then you can start to pick it apart and figure out, what do I need to do with this? What feels good for me? We can't fix what we won't acknowledge. I'm going to say it over and over and over again in this podcast. We cannot fix what we won't acknowledge, but we can't acknowledge things when we don't feel safe to do so. And we can't feel safe to do so unless we have someone who will understand and validate us and support us and allow us to be vulnerable. I hope this was helpful. We have gone through some heavy topics. Next week's is also heavy. I've already recorded the episode. And... We're talking about sharing our stories. This is so important, though. Right now, we're doing what is called shadow work. These are the traumas, the triggers, the shame, the fear that we're experiencing, and it is so important to acknowledge it so that we can live in the light. The only way to live most expansively in the light is to be able to acknowledge our shadow and work through it. Healing from trauma is 100% possible. You are capable of healing. I am capable of healing. We have so many tools and so many methods available to us. And that toolbox is just growing every single day. Thanks to the brilliant minds of so many mental health professionals and others. We are understanding the brain better every single day. We are understanding generational trauma better every single day. We're understanding shame resilience better every single day. We're so lucky to be living today because we can actually do something about this. If you are struggling with trauma, you are not alone. There is hope. There is a joyful life waiting for you to live it. And the way there is through the swamp. And my work, my favorite work, I love working in the light with people, but my favorite work is holding hands with you in the swamp, shining that flashlight and helping us move towards the shore where you can build a life that brings you joy and fulfillment. You're capable. I'm capable. We can do this. We're doing this. The fact that you're listening to this podcast means you are already on the journey. I'm already holding the flashlight. You've already got your galoshes on. And we are slogging through this. And there is an end in sight. And you are strong enough to get there. And when you get to that other side, the strength that you gain from slogging through the mud is going to carry you to some amazing places. Thank you for spending this time with me. And I can't wait to share with you again next Sunday. Like always, if you are getting value from this episode, please, please, please share with others. Share, 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 you guys. We are helping so many people and it's because of your shares that this podcast is growing. We've almost doubled our listenership in the last two months. And I am so excited to continue that growth trajectory, because like I said, when we share our stories, we help people feel less alone. We give them hope to then heal. We make our world better each time we're able to include people and give them hope and validation for what they're experiencing. I believe we have a very bright future. I feel so honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your journey, And if you're wanting to share, just screenshot this. You can share it on your Instagram stories or on Facebook or on TikTok. Just make sure you tag me and I will make sure that I repost to my stories and you'll end up with new followers as well. So it becomes a win-win-win for all of us. Thank you again and I'll see you next week.